Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. California counties find themselves on very different paths when it comes to reopening during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yesterday, San Francisco learned it is moving into the yellow tier of the state's framework on restrictions, even as Shasta and Riverside counties learn they are being downgraded to purple after a spike in cases. California's seven-day COVID-19 average has edged up slightly to more than 3,000. The 14-day positivity rate statewide stands at just 2.6 percent. And State Health Secretary Dr. Mark Galley says projections have improved from just a month ago. We were estimating that we might see a near doubling, 89 percent increase in hospitalizations. Thankfully, Through our hard work, our testing, our isolation, our contact tracing work, we have uh, avoided those high projected numbers. But we do show even today with our cases and our hospital trends that we predict a 46 percent increase a month from now. Galley also released the state's guidance on reopening amusement parks. Smaller theme parks will be allowed to admit 25 percent of their capacity or 500 customers, whichever is fewer. Larger theme parks like Disneyland will only be allowed to reopen at 25 percent capacity once their county has moved into the least restrictive yellow tier. In a statement, Disneyland Resort President Ken Potrock called the state's guidance arbitrary and unworkable. Turning to higher ed, students often quit California's community colleges before graduating. It's long been a pain point for the state. Well, this week, college leaders are celebrating a $100 million donation meant to help. KQED's Vanessa Roncano reports. The Jay Pritzker Foundation is pledging to put up $5 million a year for the next two decades. The idea is to support students in regions with the fewest college graduates. Students there would get money to help them with the full cost of school, including transportation, housing, and childcare. Madera Community College President Angel Reina says even before COVID-19, his students were struggling with these basic needs. Can you imagine if you're a student that receives, let's say you even receive 10000 and now you could just focus on your education, what that does for you and your success? Reina's campus is one of 34 eligible for the funds, including up to $150,000 per college this year for emergency funds to support students through the pandemic. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. Caltech and the University of Southern California are among the plaintiffs suing the federal government for placing new restrictions on hiring highly skilled foreign workers. KPCC's Carolyn Champlin has more. 
new rules from the Departments of Labor and Homeland Security would make it harder for U.S. employers to hire high-skilled international workers, like software engineers or physics professors. Some workers' visas would be shortened from three years to one year. Also, the government has raised salary expectations to rates employers say they won't be able to afford. Officials say the idea is to prioritize U.S. workers during the pandemic. Miriam Feldblum heads the President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration. It's a coalition of university leaders and a plaintiff in the suit. She says the restrictions would stifle research and discourage international students from attending local universities. Science cannot be done without also attracting the best global talent in the world, something Caltech does so well. The plaintiffs are asking a federal judge to block the new rules. For The California Report, I'm Caroline Champlin in Los Angeles. A federal investigation into a deadly boat fire off the coast of Santa Barbara a year ago has found human error was mostly to blame. The fire aboard the Conception killed 34 people, the deadliest maritime disaster in modern state history. KCRW's Matt Gillum has more. The NTSB determined negligence by Truth Aquatics, the company that owned the Conception, was directly linked to the spread of the fire that brought down the vessel in the pre-dawn hours of Labor Day last year. They blamed a lack of roving overnight patrols for allowing the fire to grow, as well as inadequate smoke detectors. Along with lambasting Truth Aquatics for not maintaining a roving patrol, board member Jennifer Homendy successfully lobbied her colleagues to rephrase the probable cause of the incident to partially ascribe blame for the fire to deficiencies with U.S. Coast Guard policy. Contributing to the undetected growth of the fire was the lack of a United States Coast Guard regulatory requirement for smoke detection in all accommodation spaces. Despite a meticulous investigation of the wreckage, the exact cause of the fire was never determined. The NTSB offered 10 new safety recommendations based on the incident. Many focus on further implementing smoke detectors, while others lay out the need for secondary escape routes. For the California Report, I'm Matt Gillum in Santa Barbara. San Francisco supervisors have unanimously approved new legislation, which makes it a hate crime to make racist non-emergency calls to the police. It's called the Caution Against Racial and Exploitative Non-Emergencies Act, also known as the Karen legislation, and nod to the Can I Speak to Your Manager Privileged White Woman meme. Supervisor Shaman Walton introduced the legislation. Black, indigenous, people of color have the right to go about daily activities without being threatened by someone calling 911 on them due to racial bias. It creates distrust among communities of color and law enforcement. 911 and emergency calls to law enforcement should not be weaponized in this way and should be used for actual emergency. The legislation gives people the right to sue a 911 caller in civil court, and supporters hope it will make some think twice before turning to police. The discrimination need not be only racial. It can also be due to the person's sex, age, religion, disability, gender identity, weight, or height. We are less than two weeks away from Election Day, but Californians aren't waiting till then to vote. Almost 4 million state residents have already cast their ballots by mail. Those robust early returns are causing excitement among groups dedicated to increasing voter turnout, but there is a catch. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos explains. LA Voice Action is an independent expenditure group that's supporting progressive candidates in Los Angeles County. This year, says Tina McKinner, the group's director of civic engagement, they're contacting 50,000 voters in communities of color. 
But unlike traditional campaigns, LA Voice Action isn't just going after Angelinos who have reliably voted in the past. People don't call low propensity voters. I've worked on many campaigns. We call the folks that voted in the last three to five elections because, you know, marketing, if you go by marketing, those are the people who vote. So that's where you put your money. That's what your target. Leaders in the Latinx and Black communities say it's long been a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't reach out to motivate potential new or occasional voters, they won't show up. So McKinner's group is focusing on encouraging those new voters to weigh in. We've targeted these low propensity voters. We're talking to them. They're excited. And we're very excited. It's going to be a game changer. They're going to change the game. It could well be a game changer if those folks actually vote. But so far, says voter data expert Paul Mitchell, that's not who has generally been sending in ballots in California. We're seeing a lot of the same people that we expected to vote just vote earlier. It's still an open question as to whether or not these unlikely voters are going to make it to the polls. That's not necessarily bad news for McKinner and others like her. Mitchell, whose firm Political Data Inc. sells voter data to both Republicans and Democrats, says by locking in high propensity voters early, campaigns have more time and resources to get out the vote among less likely voters. And voter education is key in a state like California, says Ludovic Blaine. He's executive director of the California Donor Table, which has raised more than $5 million this year to back progressive candidates in local races across the state, including the ones Tina McKinner is working on in L.A. Blaine noted that many local races are nonpartisan, so voter education is key. It's very hard to be an informed voter in California, and the groups that we fund help voters understand the actual choices and do the work to find out who the best candidates are, regardless of their identity and their party. But money alone won't get you there. Campaigns say conversations with friends and neighbors are also key to ensuring everyone has an opportunity to weigh in. Los Angeles County voter Wanza Tolliver, a small business owner who leads the Lawndale Democratic Club, says she's trying to be that resource in her community. And I'll do whatever it takes. Um, I just keep asking, hey, do you need help? How can I help you? Whatever it is they need. Paul Mitchell, the voter data expert, says he does expect California to break voting records this year. But campaigns are going to have to work hard in these final days if they want the electorate to look significantly different than in years past. For The California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.
The Department of Justice says it has reached an $8 billion settlement with Purdue Pharma, the maker of the prescription painkiller OxyContin. Officials say the company will plead guilty to three counts, including conspiracy to defraud the United States. The settlement does not release members of the Sackler family from criminal liability. Anangir Dardas, author of the book Winners Take All, has written about how the Sacklers, for years, used their extraordinary wealth to distract from their role in the nation's opioid crisis. He joins me now. Good morning, Anand. Does today's announcement represent justice? I think today's announcement is the beginning of a process of justice for Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, and certainly not the end. Given the impunity that has defined American life in an age of plutocracy, it is very possible uh, that it won't go much further than it has gone today with this financial settlement. But there is an ongoing criminal investigation. This settlement specifically does not release members of the Sackler family and others from criminal prosecution down the road. And it is an important first step toward uh, justice for one of the great cruelties of modern American life. Anand, how did the Sackler family's philanthropy help shield them from scrutiny? The story of the Sacklers and Purdue and us is in many ways a kind of biopsy of how plutocracy has worked more generally in our body politic over these recent decades. So you have, in this case, a clear and manifest uh, crime, what is now being admitted to as a crime, um, opioids being developed, sold, marketed in ways that were fraudulent, in ways that were known to the people pushing them to be uh, more addictive than they let on, more dangerous than they let on, um, in which the company pushed back against prescient state and federal authorities who actually realized we had a problem years ago in the 90s and were trying to do something, beat back those efforts. And so you have real corporate malfeasance. Now, the problem is, if, you, if that's all you do, if the way you show up in the world as a company or as a billionaire is just doing bad stuff, justice is going to come for you very fast. It's not going to take 25 years to come for you. So what do you do? Over here, you're doing the corporate malfeasance. And over there, you start doing a second thing, which is plutocratic do-gooding. Um, in this case, it took the form of philanthropy, which is often the form it takes. There are other forms out there, social enterprises, impact investing, etc. But in this case, it was, it was philanthropy and largely academic and arts philanthropy, museums at Harvard, museum, you know, wings at the Met, Smithsonian, uh, around the world. And the Sackler name, in most people's imagination who, who knew the name at all, was associated with the arts and with philanthropy and not with the ongoing killing of tens of thousands of Americans every year. And a really important particular point in this story is the geography of where the philanthropy was and where the injustice was happening. I mean, the opioid crisis was everywhere, but it was particularly you know, dangerous in places like McDowell County, West Virginia, a lot of rural and exurban areas where it was killing a sizable fraction of the population every year. And the philanthropy was not in those places. The philanthropy was in places where people like you live and people like me live, in the cities where we're close to media, where we're close to influential power structures, because they wanted to buy people like us off so that they could keep doing what they were doing to people uh, in the heartland of this country.
Anangir Dardas, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good to hear from you. Thank you for having me. That was Anangir Dardas, who's posted an excerpt of his book, Winners Take All, to his blog at the.inc. Finally this morning, a distinguished emeritus professor of mathematics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, has just put much of his intellectual property in the public domain so that others can use it freely. From the three, you then use one to make ten ones, and you know why four plus minus one plus ten is fourteen minus one, because addition is commutative, right? And so you got thirteen tens, and you take away seven, and that leaves five. That professor is Tom Lehrer, and the body of work he's opening up for everyone to share is from his side job in the 1950s and 60s, writing satirical and humorous songs, usually commenting on the news of the day. First we got the bomb, and that was good, because we love peace and motherhood. Then Russia got the bomb, but that's okay, because the balance of power is maintained that way. Who's next? Tom Lehrer also wrote songs for The Electric Company on PBS. Who can turn a can into a cane? Who can turn a pan into a pain? It's not too hard to see, it's silent E. By the early 1970s, Lehrer had mostly retired from performing in favor of his work as a mathematician. But he is considered enormously influential as a satirist. He's 92 and still lives in Santa Cruz. I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica, wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea. I spent Shavuos in East St. Louis, a charming spot, but clearly not the spot for me. And that's the California Report for this Wednesday, October 21st. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks for listening. I'm spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica by the sea. Support for the California Report comes from Two Chairs, offering virtual therapy sessions designed to help clients thrive. Two Chairs therapists have personalized care to over 4,000 clients in California. Learn more at twochairs.com. Paint Care. Now with 770 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.